You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Jen Smith. I'm Adam Cole, Couples Financial Counselor. Hey, this is Lindsay Brian Podvin, and today we are earning and investing in money marital conversations. My wife was pissed. Or maybe severely confused describes it better. You see, I had spent the last three months reading personal finance books. I was convinced that we needed to change our way of life. So I sat her down and started talking about the fact that maybe we really didn't need a nanny anymore, that the kids were old enough. Maybe we were wasting money on those two cars. And as you can imagine, it didn't go over very well. Because I had made a few cardinal errors, right? So if you're going to talk to your spouse about money, there are at least three ingredients you need. One is you need to have the right information. Two is you need to communicate it effectively. And three, it has to be the right time. You can argue whether I had the information right or not, but clearly two and three were completely off. For one, I was communicating with the mind of someone who had been reading about personal finance for the last three months. And my wife didn't have that vocabulary because she had not been doing that. Number two, I kind of hit her over the head with all this information. I didn't prepare her for this conversation. I didn't start the conversation slowly and have it over days or weeks. I hit her all at once with it. And now looking back, I realized after talking to her more that I probably even had that first point wrong too, the information, because that information that I had found was all tailored to me and what my interests were. And the truth of the matter was, I hadn't taken into account what her interests are and the information that was important to her. What I came out of this conversation realizing is that talking to your spouse about money, it's not easy. And maybe just maybe we all could use a little bit of help. And speaking of our finances, want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com. That's W A L L E T. H-A-C-K-S dot com, and be sure to sign up for their free newsletter. Lindsay Brian Podvin blogs and podcasts at Mind Money Balance. She was the first financial therapist in Michigan and one of, what, 50 in the United States? Yeah. (laughs) 
That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'd say so. Adam Cole is a tax lawyer and a conflict mediator and also a financial counselor and coach. If you watch his YouTube channel, you might just happen to see him sing and play the piano. You're an artist at heart, aren't you? That's true. I enjoy bringing the creative side into my business. Thanks for having me, Doc. And Jen Smith is the blogger behind Modern Frugality, and she's the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, the Frugal Friends podcast. Jen, it's great to have you back on. I am happy, as always, to be here. Well, I'm going to jump right in. Lindsay, tell me the truth. If I were sitting in your shoes and I was arguing with my spouse about a money matter, I would pull out the I'm the only financial therapist in Michigan thing. So you have to listen to me. So tell me the truth. Does that ever come up? No. In, in fact, I would say it's often used against me in arguments of like, aren't you supposed to know better? Isn't this your actual job? So no, we all have issues and make mistakes. So if anything, I think it gets me into more trouble. And it also speaks to this fact that knowledge is only one part of the conversation, right? So even when you have the knowledge, there are emotions and history, and you have to overcome some of those too. Yeah, a thousand percent. It's never just knowledge fixes everything. We have to include the emotional and psychological side of things. Adam, I'm interested in this idea that you are a tax lawyer and a trained conflict negotiator. When I think about lawyers and marriage, I usually think about them separating marriages, not bringing them together. Yeah, I remember hearing a line that big law firms have a lot of divorces and a lot of Porsches. That was the tagline. You know, my journey is kind of an interesting one, but I started off wanting to be a lawyer and a tax lawyer at a regular firm. And over the last seven or eight years, just a big life shift, realizing I wanted to do something that was close to my heart, wanting to do something where I could live out more of my values of equity and justice and be able to work for myself and contribute to other people and eventually led me to pursue my coaching as a business and specifically focus on couples. Was it helpful, your legal background? I mean, it wasn't is for a couple of reasons. Number one is just credibility, right? I mean, just whether it's fair or unfair, when you say Duke Law School and a master's in tax law from NYU, people are like, ooh, okay, he has some real experience, which is honestly helpful in the world of coaching because it's such a new thing and there's not always these formal certifications. So without, for example, the known background like Lindsay has as a therapist, right? uh, It's something that's helpful for people to respect me a bit. And then just in general, of course, it helps me understand different tax matters and different financial issues. And certainly law school honed my writing abilities and my analytical part of my brain. So that, of course, helps in coaching as well. Jen, frugality is a major part of both your blog and podcast brand. Tell me the truth. Who's more frugal, you or your husband? My husband. In all honesty, he is the one that inspires me and like gives me a ton of my material. So I don't think I would have a business if I wasn't married to this man. You ever look at his frugality and you're like, I'm not doing that. That's going too far. All the time. time. (laughs) Are you sure you want to admit that? (laughs) Yes. Well, I admit it on the Frugal Friends podcast all the time. He (laughs) listens. So he knows exactly how I feel about some of his decisions. Lindsay, I feel like financial coaching is part of normal marriage counseling. 
but maybe it isn't. How does a financial counselor differ from a general marriage counselor? I think that I agree that it should be a part of marriage counseling, premarital counseling, is including the money talk. But unfortunately, it isn't. And as a therapist, I was actually not trained in anything money-related except for in a death and dying class when we were talking about durable power of attorneys and, and you know setting up a will and trust. So my exposure as a trained social worker was that we did not talk about money and we were certainly not trained about money. But as we know, statistics show arguments about money are the number one slash number two cause of divorce, depending on which study you're looking at, depending on which year. So we should be talking about this. And the problem I see when we try to fold in money talk to things like counseling is it's very prescriptive. It's very much like you have to do this one thing. You have to have a budget. You have to have a plan, which is all true. But we also have to talk about the why behind the budget and the plan. And that's what's going to deepen and strengthen your partnership. And that's where having a therapist can really help kind of suss out those nuances there. Adam, she mentioned the why. And Lindsay also talked about this idea of premarital counseling Are couples usually in the same place financially when they meet and start their lives together? I'm trying to separate out this idea. Is it a values issue or a communication issue? I think it depends on the couple. What's remarkable is how their context is so decisive. And by that, I mean, I've had a client who came to me and they said, yeah, we grew up so differently. You know, his family was more about saving and mine was more about investing. And I was thinking, that doesn't sound that different to me. (laughs) But because they were struggling to get on the same page and they didn't feel like they were connecting over their finances the way they might over different important areas of their relationship, then in their mind, it became a values difference. Now, there are also people who had meaningfully different upbringings. And this is something that is really important to fold into these discussions. For example, if you grew up in poverty or grew up with a wealthy family, that not, doesn't just affect your mindset in a certain sense, but also affects whether you might be willing to take a certain financial risk because you feel like your parents could you know, take care of you or write you a check or you can move in if that happened, if it didn't work out versus if someone maybe doesn't have a lot of family money, they, it might kind of constrain some of their choices. And not only is that, that important practically, but when we're having discussions with our partners that they are bringing awareness of that to the conversation because it's going to color how we look at things that to me might seem obvious, but to you might seem like a terrible or scary, dangerous choice. Right. And the key, as Lindsay said, was that we're partnership and teamwork, right? Bringing them together, making this an area that can help their relationship actually be stronger. And what you're talking about there a little bit, Adam, is those money stories we come into a relationship with. Absolutely. And I actually call it your money and relationship story because I think there is an important part of what's it been like, not just with your parents, but what about in your past romantic relationships, right? Both personally and professionally, I've seen the impact of that on people and how they relate to their partners. Jen, let's go back to when you were a newlywed or even when you were engaged. How much conversation did you guys talk about your money stories and whether they meshed? We we knew early on that we had like a similar kind of view of money, but we didn't really talk about it. We didn't talk about it until we got engaged, actually. And I feel like 
we had similar upbringings and similar ways that our parents spent money, but that manifested in the way we each deal with money actually really differently. So like both of our parents didn't make a ton. His parents were a little more entrepreneurial, but in his life, it caused him to be a real big saver, like really frugal, really stingy. And so he would make money and hoard it or spend as little money as possible. And for me, it manifested in the scarcity mindset thing where if I had money, I had to spend it because it wasn't going to be around for that. Like it wasn't going to be around longer. It wasn't going to make enough. I didn't know if I was going to have like a paycheck next month, just like all these really weird mindsets that didn't really have any fact to back them up. But so like kind of the same upbringing, but caused him to be really stingy and me to do a lot of like impulse spending. Do you remember Jen having that specific conversation or series of conversations? How did you bring it up and develop that kind of safe space to talk about such things? So the first conversation was actually about our student loans because we each had student loans. And uh, he said when we got married, the first thing he wanted to do was pay them off. And I said, because of the, you know, that mindset. And I said, that's the opposite of what I want to do. Like, I want to go have fun. And I was in my 20s. And I said, I want to live like I'm in my 20s. I want to travel and do all these things. So that is how we discovered how our mindsets differed. And eventually he, over the course of a conversation, was able to show me, you can have enough money. but in order to get there, we have to take care of this debt first. And so it was really having like a forward thinking conversation helped me to see the problems with my mindset and where that was going to lead me. Lindsay, Jen describes her conversation as a forward thinking conversation. In my introduction, I talked about one of my conversations, which was not a forward thinking conversation. (laughs) What advice do you give to couples on how to start having these money conversations? I think it's really helpful to start the money conversation by not having the money conversation, which sounds bananas, but let me explain. It's more helpful to come at it from a broader perspective than coming at it with like, here are every single line item in our budget. Here's our 10-year plan or six-year plan or whatever plan. Because what you're doing when you come in hot like that with all these the data and the facts and figures is you're already setting yourselves up to be on separate pages where one of you is the expert and one of you is like the student, right? So instead of coming in like that, to zoom out a bit and have conversations that are more about lifestyle and values and goals and thinking about how the money plugs into it. So where do we want to be in five years is a great conversation, not just for job interviews, but also with your partner. Do we want to be in the same apartment? Are we interested in purchasing a house? Does one of us want to become an entrepreneur and work for ourselves? And then once you have some of those bigger picture things kind of dreamt out, then you can kind of reverse engineer your way into the money conversation. And I think that tends to be more helpful to at least get it started. Yeah, that's exactly what my husband did when we were having that conversation. He asked, where do we want to be in five years? And so that was the first time I was actually able to 
write down where I wanted to be in five years and then work backwards from that and say, oh my gosh, yeah, if, if we keep this you know, $78,000 of debt, I won't be able to get here. But if we made a five-year plan to pay it off, then yes, this is an actual tangible possibility. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm completely aligned with both Jen and Lindsay on this. And one thing you mentioned money stories before, Doc, and that's something else that I use for my clients to start talking about money without talking about money. Because as Lindsay said, if you go into the line items, that is just asking for contentiousness. That is just asking for an argument, right? But if you can start off with something that's just like describing how you grew up with money or how your parents were or what were the cultural norms and expectations based on your religion, gender, uh, race, anything like that, that's kind of hard to argue with, right? It's just, you're just speaking about your experience. And it's my favorite thing to do because not only does it set the foundation that they can have a healthy money talk, and talk about this topic without fighting, but they're also kind of sneakily being vulnerable with each other and learning more about each other and in the process getting more connected. Mm-hmm. Lindsay, one of the problems with these type of money talks is they require a lot of vulnerability. And I feel like shame sometimes gets in the way of these conversations and even financial infidelity. So one of the two spouses is maybe doing things with money that they haven't been talking about are owning up to. How do we get past those difficult parts of the conversation? Yeah, it's really hard, but not impossible to come back from financial infidelity. And I think that when we think about shame, my guess, I can't, you know, paint a broad picture on everybody who has engaged in financial infidelity, but I imagine it actually starts because of shame. I don't want to tell my partner that I have this credit card debt. I don't want to tell my partner that I have this student loan debt. I don't want to tell my partner that every payday I go out and I buy my entire office around a round of drinks. All of that stuff comes with shame and baggage. So my guess is that in most cases where I've seen it, and I'm just painting a broad spectrum here, but I imagine it starts with that is it comes from, I don't want to tell my partner what I'm doing, whether I'm hiding my spending, hiding my debt, whatever it is. And I've also seen it on the other side. I've seen partners hide that they have inheritances because they don't want their partner to then think of them as, you know, snobby or greedy, or they didn't work hard for it. So there's so much shame wrapped up in, up in it. So if we can untangle that, it makes it easier to have those conversations doesn't make it easy. It just kind of lightens the, you know, the emotional load and just normalizing it, right? To say, we all experience shame around money, whether it's, oh my gosh, I can't believe I spent that much or how did I rack up that debt? And it's important to just say that's okay. It's normal. And talking about it takes away some of the stigma. You know, Adam and I are friends offline and, you know, we were just messaging the other day just about our own kind of baggage around money and how helpful it is for us to share what we've experienced when we're ready, obviously, but with our clients because it normalizes it and it makes it easier to process. Jen, I feel like a big part of your story was paying off debt. So you guys decided together to pay off debt quickly, to side hustle, to bring in other forms of income. Were you both on the same chapter about that immediately? Like, what if one of you guys didn't want to put in the extra work? We got on the same page pretty quickly. And I think it was just indicative of us being 
just a really good match. Like we were great friends and we're, we have a really great partnership. But that being said, like it has taken me, it did take me a little longer to get on the frugality train, which is why I talk about it so much now, because I know it is possible for somebody who was not frugal to become frugal. And it really just came with time and being committed to it over a long period of time. And there are still things where today that I spend my money sometimes in the way I want without thinking. So that still happens. But we were able to pretty quickly get on the same page because we committed to what we wanted to see in our lives in five years. And if I can add on to that, you know, the question, Doc, like if what if one of the partners doesn't want to put in the work, right? Sounds like Jen, you and your husband did a really great job of getting alignment on your goals and vision, and then you saw the value in it. I want to implore everyone out there, but especially as a man, the men out there to be willing to lean into this conversation. And while with my clients, I see a wide variety, you know, in general, I think it's fair to say that men are not as comfortable leaning into these vulnerable types of conversations. And you talk about the fact that we already make more money doing the same work than women and women have other kinds of things to deal with, like the pink taxes paying more for the same kind of goods and expected to do more of the household and emotional domestic labor. And then on top of that, if like we need to work on all of those and so be in support of that as men, but how are we also going to lean in on the individual level? Mm -hmm. Right. And be willing to have these conversations with our partners and even be willing to initiate this conversation, right? If it hasn't already been started because it's, it isn't an easy one to have, but it's an essential one. And I remember once being a guest at a meetup for women and I was the first male presenter there and they asked me this question, you know, what if your partner doesn't want to talk about this? And I said, well, you keep going back and said, well, what if he still doesn't? I said, you know, you keep throwing hearts when he throws darts. What if he still doesn't? I said, then you have to really look in the mirror and say, is this the right relationship? for me?" Right. And so I really, not just because I do this work, but I believe it is an essential thing for thriving couples to be talking about. And so for those of you who can like, hold your partner's feet to the fire if it gets to that point. But in particular, like I said, as a man encouraging other men, step up, have this conversation if your partner's been requesting it. And if they haven't, start it anyway. Yeah, I'm super glad that Travis initiated the conversation, even not knowing where I stood with finances or what I wanted to do with my future and and had that conversation and got me thinking about it. Because if he had been too nervous to do that, and I say mostly, I think more as women, we tend to be more nervous to initiate these conversations, but I'm glad that he brought it up and got me thinking about it um, because I probably would have never done that. And I don't know where we'd be today. For us, yeah, it was a relatively quick, you know, both getting on board, but sometimes it's like a slow grind and you just have to keep going slowly, having those conversations that might be about money, but not about numbers and and stuff like that to get to that place. But just starting is so essential. Lindsay, as I listen to both Jen and Adam talk, you almost get the stereotype of the recalcitrant spouse and the responsible one. And I'm wondering if that's too black and white. 
is the answer that one spouse needs to see the other's point of view and move to their side? Or is it usually more a melding of values and ideas? I I really like to think it's the latter of the two, but I think you're so right that we get stuck that one person is interested and one person is disinterested. And I think what everybody is saying is that we all have a reason to be interested in in, and invested in our personal finance, but we have to tease out why it's important to us, right? So is it important so that we can travel? Is it important because it provides safety and security? Is it important because then we can have access to education. So really thinking about the things that are important and valuable to each person. And then again, layering on the money talk on top of it. I think it's often common that one person is more interested in money, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the other person just has to throw in the towel and say, well, then you deal with it. In fact, I think that's actually more harmful in the end to say, well, I don't really like money. So you just handle it because it takes away the the partners from being exactly that is from being partners. It goes from one person, like you're saying, Doc, to be the manager and the other person just listening. I'll say as the partner that was initially disinterested in finances and is now the person who makes the budget and writes about personal <laughs> finance for a living, that it's not, it, I wouldn't classify it even as disinterest. Like at first it was my mindset to to think that I can't do this. Mm. Like I had grown up in a household that was just making ends meet. And I didn't think that there was anything more possible for me than just making ends meet. And everyone I knew had student loans. So I never thought that I could be debt-free. So it wasn't disinterest as much as it was hopelessness. And so having that spark of hope in the form of just trying to making like a a five-year plan, one that which we actually executed in less than two years, but just having that small plan and seeing like, oh my gosh, the numbers say this is actually feasible and having somebody to introduce me to a different mindset, that's kind of what sparked the fire for me. Adam, as Jen talks about this hopelessness, it definitely makes me think about mindset. When I talk to people about personal finance in general, I tend to think that 90% of being successful is not mindset and then 10% is tactical. And I'm wondering if when it comes to dealing with money in your relationship, it's the same thing. Yeah, I think so. And, and the one thing I'll plug is, as I mentioned before, is just the awareness of the different situations that each partner is in, the different identities that they hold, how that may impact the way they move through the world, including financially. I actually teach a mastermind for other financial coaches on how to be more effective with couples. And we have a whole unit on power dynamics of various sorts, just because as a coach, it's our job to help the client tease them out. If you don't acknowledge the power dynamics, if you're not aware, you don't and or don't acknowledge it. It's just stuck there. And the idea that one person has a really high paying job and the other person doesn't, it's just stuck and it, it can really drive a wedge. But let's talk about that. Let's talk about the way that makes us feel and that impacts us, right? Let's talk about the different maybe jealousy or resentment or entitlement, whatever might come along with that. Because my belief is that the more we unearth, the more we really can get on the same page. And in fact, Adam, I think in one of your YouTube videos, you tease the most important question you can ask your spouse about money. And what is that question? Yeah, it's really about finding out what's important to them to really grasp that. You know, the other thing in the why, like Jen and Lindsay have 
been really great about looking at, okay, you know, maybe one of us wants to be an entrepreneur. Maybe we want to travel. Maybe we want to have this lifestyle. The other why is why you care about that person and that relationship, right? Like I'm crazy about you and I want to have the best freaking marriage ever, right? I want our family to be like so happy all the time, right? As much as humanly possible. Well, okay, right? So how do you do that? You have to find out what is important to them as an individual so that they can thrive. Same with you, of course. And then what does it take for your relationship and your family to thrive? In the first half of the show, Lindsay, Adam, and Jen talk about why couples sometimes need financial therapy. After the break, we talk about what interventions are most helpful. But first, want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wang created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com. That's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S.com. And be sure to sign up for their free newsletter. Lindsay, quoting Adam here, in order to have the best freaking marriage ever, is it ever appropriate to just keep separate finances? I mean, is that ever the answer? <laughs> that is like the million dollar question. I am a fairly firm believer as uh, progressive and feminist as I like to tell myself that I am, that having shared accounts leaves less room for secrecy and shame and and hiding things. I do think in some cases it can be helpful to have separate accounts, but even in the event of separate accounts, I prefer that my couples have a theirs, mine, and ours instead of just theirs and mine. And again, it helps you to be on the same page with your financial goals when you have a shared account. Of course, there are always asterisks. So if it's a second marriage, if there was past financial abuse, it's going to be important to probably keep separate accounts just for that person to feel safe and secure. But in most cases, I do encourage at least a joint account. Jen, I'd ask you the same question. Is it ever make sense just to keep everything separate? I definitely agree that there are some asterisks in, you know, past cases of financial infidelity and abuse. But I personally, all for my husband and I, all of our accounts are shared and that has worked out really well for us because we can each easily have access to the accounts. And yeah, it, it does hold a little higher accountability for our purchases, but I think that's a good thing. So I highly recommend it. Yeah. And I certainly agree with what Jen and Lindsay are saying. And I love that Lindsay pointed out the different situations where, for example, for the emotional safety of one partner, right? If there was past financial abuse to have a separate account, when clients ask me about this, I say like my personal preference is aligned with Lindsay's as far as like having the yours, mine and ours. But I'm always curious about the why, right? And maybe for someone who's dealt with financial abuse and survived that from the past, like right now, separate accounts make sense. But in the future, as the trust and intimacy grows, maybe they can move to more shared money or something like that. To me, it's all about what's going to contribute to the growth of your relationship. And of course, having strong finances as well. 
Yeah. And what I would tack on to what everyone has been saying is that it is important to have some autonomy in your relationship with money. My partner and I give each other, we don't give each other. It comes from our money. We have everything together. But at the top of the month, we each get cash and that cash we can each spend however we want. If I want to hoard it for a few months, I can do that. If he wants to go spend it all right away, he can do that as well. And I know there's different ways to set it up. For some couples, they have the separate checking account just for that discretionary spending. For some couples, I know they'll set up like a text alert once they hit a certain number if they're using their credit card. But I do think it's important to have a little bit of autonomy, even if it's just like, oh, I want to get my partner something for their birthday and I don't want them to know, you know, it can be helpful. So I don't think that just because you have joint accounts means that you have to run every single purchase by your partner. I think, you know, having these types of conversations makes it easy to make finances sustainable in your relationship and giving each other a little bit of breathing room can be helpful too. Lindsay, tell me who is your ideal client? I'll rephrase that. How does someone (laughs) know it's time for them to need a financial therapist? Oh, it's such a hard question. It's easier when I talk to uh, personal finance professionals. They usually know when it's time for their clients to seek a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) So when I'm talking to like CFPs or CPAs or anybody who's in that space, I usually tell them, hey, once you start feeling more like a therapist and less like a planner, it's probably a good referral. And so what that typically means is if you're spending more time you know, then you feel, let me back up. If you're spending time talking about money and you feel like you're spinning the wheels, you're not making forward progress, then it might be time for a financial therapist. I think most of us can educate ourselves and do a lot on our own. I love how many resources are available through blogs and podcasts and social media and YouTube, right? There's so many amazing resources. And at the same time, sometimes all of those resources can be really overwhelming and having a neutral, objective third party, be it a coach or a therapist, can be really, really helpful. So I think if you're finding yourself stuck, like we've tried the budget talk, we've tried the retirement talk, we tried saving, blah, 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 and things aren't moving, then it might be some time to get some external accountability. Jen, from your platform, your blog, and your podcast, I'm sure you interact with many, many people. Do you find yourself thinking, hmm, I wish I could refer them to a financial therapist? Yeah, there are a lot of people that have issues that I am not qualified to deal with. I am an educator and I love helping people save money, but then there's a relational aspect that I, especially just on across a blog or a podcast, I really can't help with. So yeah, and I'm a firm believer that everyone should see some type of counselor or therapist at least once by the time they turn 30. So <laughs> if that's you and you that. haven't seen one, yeah, it's it's probably time. You've had enough life experience that something has messed you up. So, so yeah, definitely. Adam, let's talk a little bit about some of the unique tools you have to offer as a financial counselor. Did I see that you use drawing? And I certainly have seen you use music, at least in your content. Do you explore the arts with your patients? I do. And you know, the, the art thing is funny. It's gets mixed reviews on the front end when I ask them to do it, but they love it on the back end. I'm someone who from elementary school age 
decided I was not an artist, like a drawing artist and uh, was a stick figure kind of person. And then when I was getting trained to be a volunteer mentor with uh, some elementary school kids in the YMCA out in California where I used to live, the program director was a art therapist and she had us draw and I had that like visceral response like, oh, please don't. And then when I did, I was like, okay, this was actually really powerful. So when I take my clients through their money story, I have space for them to write, but I also ask them to draw. And it's fascinating. It's kind of fun to guess what I thought they meant. Uh, And then I'm almost always completely wrong. But it really, in those early sessions, kind of starts to set the stage for having a little bit of lightness, uh, fun, curiosity around the money conversation, which I, as their coach, that's my number one job is to be curious about them, but also for them with their partners. Uh, And then with the music, yeah, I mean, honestly, I wanted to do something fun to relate to my audience and bring in my creativity. So I decided I'm going to take some 80s and 90s songs and rewrite the lyrics to be about money and relationships and personal finance and the gender wage gap. And I made one for the current pandemic uh, as we're recording. But, you know, I just really enjoy that kind of shows my personality. And honestly, I actually played piano for a client's child on a call recently because he ran out of the room and we were all there and they were really being emotionally impacted by the coronavirus. And I just got inspired to lighten the mood, literally took my laptop, went over to the piano in the house and we played and he sang along. And, you know, you really just, it's our job, especially in a time like this to use all the tools in our toolkit to try and make life better for our clients. Adam, what do you ask your clients to draw? I have a handout with a series of questions to dig into their money and relationships history. And I ask them to answer through art. So they can also answer through words, but it's like, okay, what was it like growing up with your family with money, for example? Well, what are you going to draw, right? And to see what comes out. And it's really neat. That's awesome. Lindsay, are there any special techniques you use, journaling or meditation or anything that you do that makes different than what you would do as a general marriage counselor? Like Adam, I have a very visceral response to art therapy. So I don't <laughs> encourage, I, I encourage my clients to do whatever they want, but I'm off. I don't think to date I've ever led any clients through any art therapy exercises. <laughs> I definitely lean toward what you're talking about, Doc. Mindfulness exercises, journaling, I think is huge. And I think often for me, metaphors work really well. So even if I can't, kind of connect with a client on, again, like the black and white, the bookkeeping side, kind of eliciting other things that might work to help paint a picture can be hugely important. Do I think it's different than most therapists? No, I think that most therapists have a variety of of skills and tools that they offer to their clients, but mine is certainly focused on the finance piece. Jen, a moment ago, Adam was talking about his clients were stressed out in the current environment with coronavirus. How do you think this current pandemic and shelter in place is changing our relationships with money and our spouses? It's definitely making us a little tired of them by this point. (laughs) (laughs) And does that have anything to do with money or not? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, everyone has been impacted so uniquely. So there are some people that 
are really devoid of time because they're essential workers. And so their income hasn't been affected, but their health and their quality of life has. Where there have been others that have lost their job, may have lost their industry or their business and don't know when they'll go back to work or others who know they'll go back to work, but don't know when. And who, who even knows what it will be like when this episode airs because it's changing so rapidly. Mm-hmm. So I, there, and I have found that to be an issue when writing and, and creating content because there are, everybody's situation is so unique. Like how do you create mass content for, for such unique situations? But I think there's going to be a new normal that we go back to after all this is said and done. And it's not, it's not going to be like what we saw after the 2008 financial crisis. I think it's still to be determined, but there will be a new normal and we will pivot to adjust accordingly. <laughs> Lindsay, are you seeing the stress level of your clients at an all-time high right now? Interestingly, no, which I thought for sure I would. I thought for sure that people's anxiety would be heightened right now, that their stress levels would be higher right now. And I would say it comes and goes in waves. There's no, I'm not saying like, oh, all my clients are perfectly happy. But what I have seen more of that has been shocking, including people who have been laid off, furloughed, or had their income decrease, is just this overwhelming sense of gratitude for other things, right? So I'm seeing more and more clients say, I'm so thankful that we have health insurance through my partner. I'm so thankful that we are a two-income household. Or I'm so thankful that even if we lost our jobs, we have our health. So I'm seeing a lot more gratitude than I'd even anticipated seeing in during this current crisis. Yeah. And similar experience for me, definitely some clients like the one I mentioned before, they were feeling really stressed and, you know, having their kid around and working from home and all of that. But I had another client who, some of it also depends on where they're at, like as far as in their work with me. And I would guess, Lindsay, you've had a similar experience, like the ones who are very first starting, it's a little more stressful. Mm -hmm. But in this case, a client who I have regular calls with, but they've already gone through my program and we just have quarterly check-ins. And on the last call I posted about on social media, the wife said, like, mind blown, Adam, because they went ahead before even meeting with me, made their very own, like, kind of thin down budget to get to the really essentials. And when they made that budget, now that they're on top of their finances and they can talk about it, she was able to realize like, oh my goodness, we could live on just my husband's salary. So I actually have a lot of opportunities. I could be a stay-at-home parent if I wanted. I never knew that was possible. So yes, there is a lot of stress and anxiety out there. However, a lot of people are also taking this opportunity to take a second look at things and new ways forward are kind of showing themselves. And that's like what Jen was saying, you know, there's, it's not going to go back to normal. It's going to be a new norm. Mm-hmm. Right. And people are, are embracing that. Lindsay, if people are struggling right now with these marital money conversations and either don't have the money or the wherewithal to find a financial therapist, are there some good resources that people can reach out to, to at least learn what they need? Yeah, I think so. I think one of the things that's important is just, doing it together is is really really important. So whether you choose, you know, a Dave Ramsey, a Susie Orman or somebody else, 
find somebody that clicks with you, find somebody whose language resonates with you and work together on it. I think the nice thing about, again, our day and age is those aren't our only options anymore. Those used to be the only two people you could think of. And now we are so fortunate to have people who have broader ideas and belief systems around what money is and what it can be. So don't restrict yourself to just kind of the old... I almost said dinosaurs, but I don't know that that's appropriate. (laughs) But find somebody else, right, who clicks with you, who resonates with you, and and do it together. It's not impossible. It's it's like anything. The first time you do it, it's going to be awkward and uncomfortable, and you're going to fumble, and that's okay. Every time you engage in the money conversation, it's going to smooth out. Those edges are going to be kind of sanded off, and it'll you'll get into a groove. And as long as you remember, like both Adam and Jen have been talking about today, that you guys are in this together, it's going to make that conversation so much easier if you keep coming back to like, okay, the reason we're having this awkward, uncomfortable conversation is because we want things to work out and we want to be on the same page. Well, I want to thank you guys for coming on today and certainly want to ask you where the heck you guys were before I had that awkward conversation with my wife, because clearly I would have benefited from hearing some of these things before. (laughs) And I just wanted to plug a few resources. Number one is you can follow all of us on social media. And Lindsay just came out with a book, The Financial Anxiety Solution, I believe is the title. So you're welcome. (laughs) Check that out. And a friend of mine, Grace Pomroy, I believe that's her Instagram. She has a money date night club that's more of like a monthly membership thing that helps. And I certainly put out plenty of content as well that you can find. And one thing that I created is I call it the your relationship with money and your honey quiz. And it's just a quick quiz you can take. And it's like one of those bit.ly links. So it's B-I-T period L-Y slash love money quiz. And then based on your results, I kind of put you into one of these four different categories. And then there's a specific tool that's all free based on wherever you and your partner are at. And Adam, where can we find you on the internet and what's up next in your life? Where you can find me on the internet. So LinkedIn is just my name, Adam Cole, K-O-L. And Instagram is A-H-K coaching. I also host the Equal Partners podcast, which is about everything related to money and relationships. And what's next in my life is continuing to grow. And I'm going to be launching a podcast for financial coaches with another financial coach named Tess Wicks. So look out for that. And Jen Smith, where can we find you and what's up next in your life? You can find me at Modern Frugality anywhere that there are tags or social media and Modern Frugality on YouTube. And I also, I have a resource that I made out of that initial conversation that my husband and I had about our five-year goals. So I made a goal planning workbook and it's, it's usually $19, but if you opt in any, to any of my email opt-ins on my site, uh, you can actually get it for $7 and it's got one, five, 10 year planning documents and debt payoff trackers and, and all that sort of thing that we used when we were paying off debt. And Lindsay, if someone is looking to find out more information about you, where can they find you and what's up next in your life? They can find me pretty much everywhere at Mind Money Balance. Instagram is my platform of choice, but my podcast is under the same name. And in terms of what's coming up for me, being one of only 50 financial therapists, I've had a full practice for about a year. So I 
launch group-based coaching programs, which allows me to go across state lines without messing with my licensure. So I do those a handful of times a year. And that group-based program is called Boundless. So you can always add yourself to the wait list if you're interested. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Jen Smith, Lindsay Brian Podvin, and Adam Cole. That's a wrap. Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast? Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. Now back to the show. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is... There's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. We are here with JL Collins. Welcome back to the show. He is the writer of The Simple Path to Wealth arguably one of the best personal finance books out there. Jail, I've noticed whenever I see someone on an internet forum asking what are the best books to read for personal finance or financial independence, you are often number one, but certainly always in the top three. Well, so first of all, it's a pleasure to be back on the on the program with you, Doc, and not the least of which is you always say such nice things. <laughs> so I'd only say them if they were true. Well, I appreciate I appreciate that, and I obviously I don't see every time people mention their favorite books, but I do uh, when they happen to mention the Simple Path to Wealth, and and they put it as their number one or in their top uh, three or four or ten, you know, that I sometimes that comes across my path, and and uh, it's always great to see. 
And if I remember correctly, JL, it's been a recent anniversary for this book. Did I see that on Twitter? Uh, you did. Uh, the anniversary was June 18th, and the book came out in 2016. So it's been four years. Let's go back to your 2016 mindset, or even further back, if I recall, the material for the book was really came from a series of blog posts that were meant mostly for your daughter. When you were writing those blog posts that eventually became the book, did you ever think that this many people would eventually read your words in the book format? Never. I never. When I first started the blog, uh, it was strictly as a way to archive information for my daughter. I had no idea that there were other financial blogs out there. I know that sounds impossibly naive, but it's true. I've joked frequently that the first blog post I ever read was the first one I wrote. Uh, so when I started the blog in 2011, uh, yeah, it was just a way to archive information. So I never dreamed that there would be a book, let alone that it would have the international audience the, that it has today, that it would be published in Chinese and Korean and Japanese. And yeah, I, I had no concept. And in a sense, you've almost shot yourself in the foot because you freely admitted that almost all of the content in the book is available to anyone who wants to go find it on your blog. Your publisher probably didn't appreciate that. Now, I say that tongue in cheek because I know who your publisher is. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I self-published the book. I, you know, it's, it is interesting because that one, you're absolutely right. There is nothing in the book, and I have made this point from the beginning, there's nothing in the book that you cannot find on the blog. The book is a little better organized. It's more concise. I spent more time polishing the writing. I'll leave it up to readers as to whether it is, in fact, more polished. But I did spend more time polishing it. But there is nothing in the book that you can't find for free on the blog. And that goes against the advice I was given at the time. And it was very intentional. Uh, the advice I was given is be sure you put things in the book that are not in the blog so people have to go buy your book. And I thought, you know, the book wouldn't exist if it wasn't for my blog readership. And the stock series, when I first start, which is a large part of what makes up the book, the first five posts in the stock series were what I had in mind. And I, that's as far as I thought it was going to go. And the other 25 plus that make up the stock series today all evolved out of questions uh, or suggestions that my readers made. So I, it just seemed wrong to, to do that to my readers. I mean, the book wouldn't exist without them. What's interesting to me is if you go to Amazon and you read the bad reviews, which I'm grateful to say are not all that many, you read the bad reviews, one of the most frequent criticisms is this is just his blog posts. <laughs> so I guess that falls under the category of no good deed goes unpunished. But it is by design. Now, Jail, the problem with most financial books is that after a few years, the information has all changed. In fact, you see authors come out with new editions of the same book every few years where they go back and they update the information. Tell me about your book. I get the feeling you're not going to need to be updating it. Has the information changed since 2016? Well, so that's a really interesting question to me. So first of all, the, the point I should make is that every year the book is sold better than the year before. 
So the book is selling right now today as we're speaking better than it has ever sold before. In fact, sales in 2020 are up about 77% over 2019, which was up over 2018, which was up over. So from a purely pragmatic point of view, I, there's not a lot of motivation to bring out a new edition. It's interesting to me, and I, to be honest, I haven't read the book since 2015 when I was reading as endlessly as I was preparing to publish it. So I actually, I actually got a copy from Amazon because I had run out of copies. So I have my own book with the intention of going through it and seeing what needs to be updated. And I'm sure, you know, when I was writing the book, I used the time period for my illustrations between uh, 1975 which was the year I started investing, and 2015, which was the last year I was doing the final revisions on the book before it came out in 2016. So I'm sure I could update it in the sense of doing it from 1975 to to 2020. Uh, I don't think the numbers would change dramatically. But it, if it's a little bit out of date in those particulars, it doesn't seem to be bothering readers too much. They seem to be focusing on the principles and the ideas behind the book rather than the details. There are probably, not probably, I think there are definitely details in the regulations around 401ks and IRAs. You know, for instance, the limits are up higher uh, today than they were when I was writing the book. So there are certainly things that could be updated. There have been a couple of additions to the stock series and the blog that I might add as chapters if I were to do it. But I think it stands the test of time so far pretty well. So in other words, the information that lies in the book is still as relevant today as it was in 2016? I think if you look at it in terms of the concept in the book, I think absolutely it's the same. None of the concepts or the investing approaches that I talk about would be different in an updated book. Some of the details of when I'm using illustrations of how the markets performed would be different because it would be from 75 to 2020 if I were doing it now. But yeah, other, maybe I'll redo it in 2025. That'll be instead of a 40-year period, then I'll have a 50-year period to look back on, say this is what happened over half a century. I have no doubt that 99% of the success of this book is due to the high quality information that you can find and read within the covers. But a very significant 1%, I believe, has to do with the title. A Simple Path to Wealth is a Genius title for a book. Tell us how you came up with that title was it after a lot of thinking or was it just the first thing that came to your mind when you thought about your information? So it was the first thing I thought about. It was the working title from the beginning and I didn't like it. And I kept hoping that inspiration would strike and I would come up with a better title. You know, I didn't, and obviously I didn't come up with something that I liked better. And so it came out as a simple path to wealth, which I was not terribly excited about, but I think you're right. I think it, it is certainly a very accurate title. And I think of course the, you know, the people who, who experience the book, they don't know until now, nobody's ever asked me that question. So now I guess we've, 
we've revealed some insider information, but people have just looked at it and said, wow, wow, that's a great title for the book. And that's exactly what the book's all about. So I, I guess I should have been more pleased with it than I, than I was at the time. And now I'm grateful that I didn't come up with something else because it probably wouldn't have been as good. <laughs> Why didn't you like the title? Was there just not enough panache? Like, what about it didn't you like? I don't know what I didn't like about it. I think in my mind, I was thinking that there was there was a book out, and I can't think of it now, so maybe it wasn't that great a title. It was one-word title, and it had a reputation of having sold exceptionally well because the title was so compelling. And so I think I was hoping I would come across some one-word compelling sort of thing, but I didn't, and... I think now I love the title and maybe I love the title because the book has done so well. So it certainly hasn't hurt anything. So I have a penchant for asking horrible questions whenever I interview. So here's my horrible. I, I know that because you've interviewed me one more than one occasion. So here's my horrible question for this interview. Is there another book in JL Collins waiting to be written? And if so, what is it about? Oh, that is a horrible question. Uh, so I, at this point in my life, I'm, I'm no longer a young man, and I no longer have the energy that I had when I was writing this book, even, you know, not all that terribly long ago. And writing a book, as anyone who's ever done it will tell you, is, is an enormous and difficult project. So realistically, I have a couple of ideas for books. Uh, if I were younger and more energetic, I would probably do it. Uh, it's wonderful having a book out there. Uh, but at this point in my life, it's probably not going to happen. And if I were to sit down and do anything, I would probably revise this one. And especially if, I, if I'm if i around and have the energy to do it in five years, I would probably do that. But, it, but I'm not sure, as we talked about earlier, you know, it's striking to me how well-received this book is internationally. And what's striking about that is that it's a very U.S.-centric book. I mean, that's you know, I know about investing in the U.S. I know about U.S. retirement programs like 401ks and IRAs. And there's large portions of the book that have a very indirect application to people internationally. They they have to read about what I have to say about 401ks, not in terms of the details of 401ks. They have to translate that into the similar programs that might exist in their country, if there are any. And yet, they have embraced the book with great enthusiasm. So I think, I think readers deserve a lot of credit. They can, you know, if they're international, they can look at the U.S.-centric things and extract what works for them. If that 40-year period, you know, it could be updated with what's happened in the last five years, in a perfect world, would that be good? Absolutely. But readers seem to have no trouble extrapolating that 40-year period to the more core ideas behind why the kind of investing I describe, index investing, long-term investing, makes sense. And so in a way, I'm not sure the updated version of the book would be any, I don't think it would be any more valuable than the book as it stands today. It's the four-year anniversary of The Simple Path to Wealth. It hit the bookshelves four years ago and still just as relevant today as it was back then. It also jibes well with a great piece of advice I always give people. If you're given a difficult path or a simple path, 
always take the simple path. JL Collins, thanks for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. If I stump the experts, then I've done well. <laughs> it means you asked really good questions. It can be whatever you want, but something to the extent of I'm Jen Smith and you're listening to the What's Up Next, or you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. I, I rebrand <laughs> using my old, my old brand. On three, two, one. Jen. Oh. oh, did I lose someone? Did I lose and you? She all? froze right when you said it. Oh, I, my internet cut out for a oh. second. I'm sorry. <laughs> are you, are you ready to do that? I was like, oh, you really put her on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> of all those questions, I asked a bunch of hard What's questions. What's my name again? <laughs> What's my name again? <laughs> all right. You ready? On yeah. three, two, one. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.